Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Organ and Tissue Donation in partnership with Donate Life. I'm your host, Michael Billings, and my guest today is Andrew Martin. Andrew is father to Ellie, who started having problems shortly after birth. They're an amazingly strong family, and as a father myself, I can't imagine the journey they've been on. Before I get to Andrew, I just want to remind you that I do this podcast in the hope that after listening, you'll do two things. Sign up to become an organ donor at donatelife.gov.au and talk to your family about your desire to be an organ donor. Both these things are equally as important as each other, and just one organ or tissue donor can transform the lives of many people. I'll remind you at the end of the episode, but for now, here's Andrew Martin to tell us about his daughter, Ellie. Andrew, thank you for joining me today. Where does the story start? I suppose the story starts for us almost three years ago when uh, we, my wife gave birth to our firstborn, Ellie, beautiful baby girl, born without any sort of problems whatsoever and, and passed all the health checks at birth and then um, got her home and not long after getting her home, only a matter of weeks, she started vomiting and having problems uh, keeping her feed down. From that point, we went uh, after about five or six weeks, the vomiting had gotten uh, worse and worse. So we went into our local hospital uh, emergency department uh, who, after spending the day there, transferred us to uh, the Westmead Children's Hospital in Sydney. And within a matter of hours of getting to Westmead, she crashed and the next thing we knew we had a baby on a ventilator in ICU. God, that's got to be terrifying for a parent. I mean, there's babies vomit all the time, but to go from that, and I understand it would have been very extreme for you to be taking her to hospital, but from that to being resuscitated must have been terrifying for you. Yeah, it, it was uh, it was probably one of the worst moments uh, we could have experienced um, as being parents. We had gone to hospital thinking that we were going to get turned around and sent back home being over-anxious parents with just a vomiting daughter uh, and to go from what we thought was was not really going to be an issue at all to suddenly having our six-week-old baby uh, on life support in the, uh, the Premier Children's Hospital in Sydney uh, was um, was quite numbing and, uh, and, and shocking, to say the least. So from there, you're into the uh, ICU and then it's from there they discover that the problem's actually with Ellie's heart. Yeah, yeah. So within probably uh, 24 hours, they had diagnosed that Ellie had a a rare uh, heart condition called cardiomyopathy, which essentially meant that her heart did not squeeze or pump the way that it normally should. It is a form of what they refer to as congenital heart disease, which uh, of which I think it's eight babies a week are born in Australia with congenital heart disease. So cardiomyopathy is just one of those forms. Uh, And and yeah, so the doctors came in and sat sat us down and said, your daughter's got a heart condition and uh, and they started to lay, lay out the situation for us from there. Okay, and what, what what was the situation like? What were they laying out? What were your options that they were given? They talked us through um, the first of all the fact that w- what the cardiomyopathy was, and then the second the second thing that they talked us through was that cardiomyopathy is not surgical. It's not like a, another kid who might have a hole or a structural defect in their heart. We couldn't actually do anything for Ellie other than give her medication and see how she would respond. So they said, uh, 
they were what they said was they they put her on these different forms of medication, um, and in most instances, one third of uh, the kids would improve, one third would roughly stay the same, and one third would continue to decline. And they had no indication as to to which way Ellie was going to go. It was very much a wait and see approach. Uh, so all we all we could do at that point was, uh, uh, I mean, we were literally bystanders in our child's life. We were just sitting there at the hospital bed. There was nothing we could do to to play any role in helping her get better. She had to do it on her own, essentially. That's got to be hard to sit there and watch, just being powerless as a parent. Very much so. Very much so. It's, you almost don't know what to do with yourself. You you just you just sit there and 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 you try and make your your daughter as comfortable as possible and hold her hand and read her stories and keep her entertained because she's bedridden and and strapped to breathing machines and hope and pray that she gets better so um the the weeks quickly started to to pass and after two weeks we were moved from icu into the general cardiac ward at the westmead children's because uh, Ellie, Ellie quickly responded quite well and they were able to take her off the ventilator and, and put her on just uh, some breathing support, some oxygen support, which she was on predominantly for about 18 hours a day so, to support her lungs um, and make it easier for her heart to do its job. And over the coming weeks, we, uh, our lives essentially revolved around the cardiac ward and it became our new home in Sydney. And Ellie, Ellie initially started to show good signs of getting better. But then after a number of weeks, improvement started to plateau and then she started to uh, slowly go backwards again. Uh, and it was at that point that the doctors decided um, they needed to do some more investigating into uh, what was going on with her heart. Going to flash forward to about May 2018, Ellie's six months old or so, and you guys start having discussions about the possibility of a transplant. Yeah, so they, after Ellie had, had stopped improving and started to decline again, the doctors took her back into what's known as the cath lab, um, and they, they uh, put a device inside her that went down into her heart and actually took some pressure readings from inside her heart valves. And when they came back out of that uh, procedure with the results, they, they sat us down and they said, look, it's not good. Our impression is that Ellie is never going to improve to the point that she can leave hospital. And you've essentially got two options. You can pursue a palliative care route and let nature take its course, or you can transfer to Melbourne and go down the path of a heart transplant. So it's off to Melbourne. It was off to Melbourne. It, it, after we got over the fact that they even do heart transplants on babies, <laughs> we've got a six-month-old baby that really can't do anything. She's a tiny little person and she wasn't the biggest baby in the world. But when they when they first said to that, I, I, I went, hold on, what heart transplants are only for people over the age of 40 that have had too much butter on their bread? It's I couldn't believe that I was actually getting told my six-month-old baby was going to have to have a heart transplant if she wanted to live. And we quickly quickly got over that and, and they walked us through what life as a transplant recipient might look like. And, and it was clear to us that if Ellie was capable of fighting, 
then we were going to give her the absolute best chance in which to do that. So Ellie and her mum were put on a medivac and flown to Melbourne and I packed our suitcases and as much belongings as I could fit into the boot and drove down the highway to the Royal Children's in Melbourne. Tell me about the day you uh, get put on the transplant list. We had been in Sydney for uh, having the conversation around transplant and relocation to Melbourne for probably about six weeks uh, trying to get on the heart transplant list. And uh, on a Monday morning, the Ellie's doctor walked into our room and said, I think you guys actually need to physically relocate to Melbourne. We had been pursuing an option of waiting in Sydney because uh, it was closer to home. And, and waiting for a call from Melbourne to say there's a heart available, get on a plane, come down. But that had been proving difficult and um, so that our, Ellie's doctor walked in and said, I think you need to go to Melbourne. And we said, okay, uh, let's, let's put those arrangements in place. And they came back two hours later and said, uh, we're going to put you on a plane first thing tomorrow morning. And we went, what? <laughs> that was, that's, a, that's a bit quick. Uh, so we, we had 12 hours to pack up our room in which we'd been living in for five months at Sydney and relocate to the Royal Children's in Melbourne where we were able to get in front of the cardiac team. Uh, and once once they were we were in front of them and they'd had a chance to actually look at Ellie, they put her on the transplant list. Um, and it was, a, it was quite a surreal experience. We... As I said, um, Ellie and Mum flew via Medivac and I, I drove down. Within two days of arriving in the um, Royal Children's at Melbourne, we saw uh, a little toddler uh, receive a new heart and we thought, oh, wow, this is very quick and we might not be here too long. Um, so we were very optimistic when we arrived that things were all going to work out uh, quite well and, and it was going to be a relatively easy process for us. How naive we were. <laughs> Once you got to Melbourne, I understand that things got better, things got worse, you, you're bouncing between the cardiac unit and the ICU and then you get approached about the idea of a Berlin heart. Tell me what that is. Yeah, so a Berlin heart is a external mechanical pump which supports the patient's heart and it essentially does their job for them. So Ellie, when Ellie got to Melbourne, she quickly rebounded a little bit and, and had a period of about two or three weeks where she actually was quite good. Then she started to decline quite quickly again and started, as you said, started bouncing between the cardiac ward and the ICU ward in, uh, in Melbourne. And at that point, it became clear that Ellie possibly wasn't going to make it to um the tran to transplant. So the doctors started to talk to us about a Berlin heart. And a Berlin heart is a 250 kilo big blue box with a pneumatic pump attached to it. And the pump is uh, surgically attached to the patient's heart. There's two tubes that go into their chest just below the rib cage and they, they sew those into the heart. And essentially what happens is the blood comes into the heart, then gets sucked out of the heart through the pump and gets pumped back inside the body and around the body. At, at this point, Ellie is about nine months old and they had they had put a number of babies on Berlin hearts before. We, 
we actually saw one on the ward while we were there. So it was it was easy to see uh, what life on a Berlin heart would actually look like. There was a toddler who would be walking around the ward looking relatively healthy. They're just permanently attached to this great big heavy blue box. The complication for us was that because of Ellie's physiology, the doctors uh, said to us, we don't know if a Berlin heart will actually work for Ellie. So it wasn't an easy decision to make actually putting her on the Berlin heart, but Ellie ended up making that choice for us when uh, one morning the head of the ICU walked in to our rooms and and said, Ellie can't wait any longer. We're going to take her to surgery in about 20 minutes. Uh, She needs to go on the Berlin heart now. Otherwise, she won't make it. How's that as a parent to hear that this is happening now? This is, and this is big surgery that we're talking about here. Well, it's open heart surgery. So it's um, we got given about 10 minutes to say our goodbyes to Ellie and then the surgeons came and whisked her off and we were told to uh, go and entertain yourselves for the next six to eight hours. It's a very numb feeling because you, you know that your child's life hangs in the balance and there's absolutely nothing that you can do to influence it, which is which is quite a position to be in as a parent. So they they took her off to surgery, they put her on the Berlin heart, and thankfully the surgery was an absolute success. And the next day we were sitting in the ICU ward with Ellie and she opened her eyes and, and she was strapped to a, a Berlin heart doing the blood uh, pumping job for her. And the best part about it was that all of a sudden she was pink. So before being on the Berlin Heart, Ellie's blood circulation had been really poor and she would often be blue in the face and not have a whole lot of colour about her. Post-surgery, she was pink and she actually looked like a a normal colour. Ellie would spend the next seven months on the Berlin Heart. Tell us a bit about just life on the Berlin Heart for all of you. We we didn't know that it was going to be seven months on the Berlin Heart. We were ever optimistic that the call might come the next day, the next week, that a heart transplant was uh, available because that was still the end game. The whole purpose of the Berlin Heart was just to act as a bridging device that would enable Ellie to get to transplant because uh, otherwise she was going to run out of time. So we were always optimistic that we might not be on the Berlin Heart for too long. But week, days turned into weeks, weeks turned into months and, and life on the Berlin Heart became very monotonous. Essentially, a typical day would look like one parent spends the night sleeping in Ellie's room with her and the other one gets a full night's sleep in hospital-provided accommodation. That person then, that parent comes into the hospital in the morning, brings the coffees, you do, and you spend the day in the ward trying to entertain Ellie because she's on a, she's fully awake, she's capable of doing things, she's just attached to a very short leash. So the whole day is basically sitting in Ellie's room aside from when you're allowed out to walk around the ward or walk around the hospital for 30 minutes at a time. And I say only 30 minutes because the battery on the Berlin Heart is only 30 minutes long and then it takes 12 hours to recharge. So Ellie would have, Ellie would constantly have um, things to do throughout the day. She'd have physio appointments and other therapies almost on a daily basis. She'd have doctor's rounds coming in once or twice a day. Uh, She'd have entertainment from 
the starlight captains would try and come in and entertain her. Uh, and it, it was amazing how easily life, the day could actually get filled up from, from dawn till dusk, just trying to entertain your little girl who is essentially bedridden. And, and, and apart from a, a third, a couple of 30 minute stints per day, um, doesn't really get to see much of the world outside of her own hospital room. While you guys are waiting for uh, Ellie's transplant, I know you guys weren't the only people on the ward. Tell me about some of the people you met on the way. When we first ended up in the cardiac ward after Ellie's Berlin heart surgery, we were the only family on the Berlin heart at that point in time. We were very quickly joined by some other families. And by the time Christmas rolled around, there were seven families all in the cardiac ward in the children's, all on Berlin hearts, all waiting for a new heart. And so we ended up becoming this little, what we affectionately referred to as a broken hearts club, which was a, a little collection of families all living permanently on the cardiac ward, all waiting for a second chance at life. And funnily enough, all with kids of a relatively similar age, because we ended up spending Christmas and New Year's and celebrating several birthdays together along the way, we all became a very, very close-knit community, the seven families, and, and formed some relationships that we're going to maintain for the rest of our lives. The, the families were from all over Australia. Uh, Melbourne is the only place in Australia that they do cardiac transplants in children. And so we had, we had this experience where we've we've come into contact and, and formed deep and meaningful relationships with other families from other parts of Australia that we otherwise would not, never have had the opportunity to meet. And the best part about that is that it means we can support each other on these journeys uh, for the years to come. I want to flash forward for a sec. Ellie has spent her first birthday in hospital. You guys have been there for God knows how long. When a friend of Kylie's rings up and says, I'm going to take her away for a break. Set the scene for me. Ellie was approaching or had approached the 400 days in hospital mark. And that represented 400 days in hospital for Kylie and myself. Um, we had spent... 400 days with our little girl bedside and hadn't seen home for any of that period of time. So one of Kylie's closest girlfriends flew down from Sydney and to take her away for a weekend out of the hospital. And, um, they had, uh, they'd gone away for a weekend or a bread and breakfast just outside of Melbourne when, and they'd only been gone for one night when a nurse came in and woke me up at 4am to say, there's a heart for Ellie. Where's Kylie? I said, she's gone away. And the nurse said, well, you better call her and get her back to the hospital. What a daunting yeah. thing. Be like the biggest call, the, the, the info you've been waiting for and your wife isn't actually there. What do you do next? It was very surreal. And, and there was certainly an element of Murphy's Law that the joke was, well, if that was all it took, why didn't we go away for a weekend six months ago? It's Anyway, so I, I woke Kylie up at uh, at about 5am and said, uh, the hospital want you to come back. They've found a heart for Ellie. And so she, luckily, she was only about two and a half hours away. 
Um, she was relatively close. And by 9am, she was back in the hospital and, and we were preparing for surgery, which was an extremely surreal experience. Didn't quite know what to think. We'll get to the surgery in a minute. I just want to, I want to ask you, tell me, you've been waiting for that information. Tell me how those words hit you. We've found a heart for Ellie. It almost didn't feel real at first. As I said, it was it was 4am in the morning and I had only gotten to sleep at about 1.30 that morning. So I'd, I'd barely had any sleep whatsoever. And to, to be having your having your shoulder shaken and, and a nurse and a, um, a, a face standing over you going, wake up, Andrew, Andrew, we found a heart for Ellie. You almost, I almost felt like I was dreaming at first. I certainly didn't know what to think. And then the, the following couple of hours, it all starts to process and, and sink in that, okay, this moment that you've been waiting for for over a year is finally arrived. Part of you wants to celebrate and go, oh, my God, we're actually, we might actually make it. And, but at the same time, you're keenly aware that down the other end, you don't know where the conversation is, but at the other end of the line, there's a team of doctors walking in to tell two parents that their child is not going to survive and they want to talk about organ donation. And that the inescapable truth that the only reason your child is going to survive is because someone else's child has passed away and the, the emotion that is attached to that fact is very complex and and takes a lot to process. So in the moment, you, you kind of feel a little bit numb. You don't know how to process it or what to do. And, and there's so much going on around you that thankfully you don't have much time to actually sit down and think about it, at least until Ellie's actually gone off to surgery. The surgery happens. It goes it, it goes well, but there is a complication at the end. The, the surgery goes well. It's, Ellie heads off to surgery at about midday, at about 4 or 5 p.m. We catch up with the doctors who say everything's going according to plan. They've taken her off the Berlin heart. That went really well. Um, they're currently removing her old heart out of her chest and they'll soon put the new heart in. And, and you think, Great, that's a relief. And and then at 9 p.m. they call again and say, the new heart's in, everything's looking good, we'll call you in a maybe another three hours and, and you can see her in ICU. But only 90 minutes later they call back and that's quick. And, and they called back and they said, we need you to come back to the hospital, we need to have a chat. And you know immediately that that's not, that's not a good sign. At, at about 11 p.m. they almost just shy of the 12-hour mark that Ellie's been in surgery. They sit us down and, and they say, we can't get Ellie off bypass. Every time that they try to take her off bypass, her lungs don't cope with the new heart. And the first thing that goes through your head is, well, what does that mean? And if you can't get her off bypass, what on earth do you do? And they respond and they say, look, there's a plan. We can't tell you if it's going to work because it's entirely up to Ellie whether she's actually going to make it through or not. But long story short, they say, we're going to bring her back to the ICU. We're going to keep her on a machine called ECMO, which is essentially the same as a bypass machine, just a longer 
or a longer version of it, and we're going to leave her chest cavity open. And, and you go, you, you're what? And they said, when you see Ellie, her chest cavity will be open and it will be covered by a clear plastic film. And, and that's a scary proposition because it, you, as a parent, you go, I don't know if I want to see my daughter's chest cavity open. So it's, it's just the most mind-numbing thing. And, and eventually when Ellie's brought back to the ICU, we walk in and she's attached to 12 or 14 different tubes. Um, she's attached to an unbelievably complex machine that's taking the blood out of her body, oxygenating it, pumping it, putting it back into her body, and there she is lying in bed with so much medical support around her and, and you just look at your daughter and you go, there's absolutely nothing I can do here except hope and pray. We knew at this point that we had no other option because this was the only possible way that in which Ellie was going to survive. There was no other way in which we would be able to take our little girl home. So not long after that, Ellie's head cardiologist who had become our closest friend in the world by this point walks in takes one look at Ellie and turns to us and says I don't see anything here that is unrecoverable and to us that was just music to our ears we knew that if if that's what he was saying then we had every reason to be optimistic and all we had to do was wait it out and after three days uh, in that twilight zone they took ellie off the ecmo machine closed her chest and she had a fully functioning heart she was breathing and heart beating all on her own without any machines to do it for her for the first time in can't even think how many months it would have been so it was a very emotional moment I find it amazing how quickly I'm learning that the body responds to a new organ because from them closing her chest to you guys being discharged isn't a lot of time. No, it was it was amazing that uh, to th- before Ellie had gone into surgery, we had been told post-transplant, you will typically be in the hospital for only 10 to 14 days and then you can expect to be discharged. Ellie's Surgery was a lot more complicated than that, but we were discharged out of hospital within a month after her transplant surgery. That's absolutely amazing that um, that she was out that fast. Tell me about taking your daughter out the door, walking outside as a family. Uh, so that was a day of, of celebration, anticipation, and just absolute pure joy that after 420 consecutive days in hospital, we got to put Ellie in a pram and wheel her out the front door and out into the open air. And for her, it was almost like a, a moment of, there is a world outside of a hospital that you didn't even know existed. Welcome, Ellie. Welcome to the new world. And we we played it really low key. We went into the park behind the hospital, had a little picnic, popped a bottle of champagne and just said, we're just going to take it in very small, simple little steps but we can now get on with the rest of our life. I just want to ask you two more questions. I know you touched on it a little bit before. What would you say to the donor's family if you were able to? Thank you isn't enough. I'm not sure that there's there's enough words to convey how we feel and just how much it means to us that the donor family was able to, to make the selfless decision that they did. In short, there is not a birthday, 
a Christmas, even just the most minor little moments throughout Ellie's life for the rest of her life where we won't pause, stop and reflect on the fact that without their selfless act of courage and generosity, we wouldn't be here. It's, it even happens to me at 3am when Ellie won't sleep and, and I'm up with her at 3am and all we want to do is be in bed with her eyes closed and you've got the toddler that, that just wants to party in the middle of the night and I'll be sitting there and I'll be going, if it wasn't for another family, I wouldn't even get to experience this right now. And so it it prompts us to acknowledge that uh, we've got so much in life to be grateful for and none of it would be possible without the influence and, and the selfless act of, of this other family. And that will remain with us for the rest of our lives. Last question, mate. What would you say to someone who was contemplating but wasn't sure about becoming an organ donor? If you would be willing to accept an organ yourself, then consider why you wouldn't be willing to donate one. The other thing that I would say is the impact that organ donation has extends so far beyond the individual recipient and their immediate family. Anyone whose life Ellie enters, whether it be extended family, friends, uh, all her friends that she will meet uh, throughout her life at school as she grows up, all those people are going to be indirectly affected by the, the decision of someone else to become an organ donor. But bring, organ donation brings joy, it brings hope, and it brings life to others. And there's no greater selfless act that you can make. Andrew, thank you so much for sharing yours, Kylie's, and Ellie's story with us. Thanks, Michael. What an amazing story. Doesn't seem fair that a child has been through so much so early in her life, but it could have ended very differently. It was only made possible because of one amazing person and their family who made the decision to become an organ donor. Australia needs more heroes like this. So if you were touched by Ellie's story, I want you to do two things. Go to donatelife.gov.au and sign up to become an organ donor and also talk to your family about your wishes. If you enjoyed the podcast, then give it a review or a rating and maybe share it on your social media. I hope it swayed you to sign up to become an organ donor. If you did sign up after hearing this or you've got any questions or comments about the podcast, drop me a line, donatelifepodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Next week, I'll be talking to Brooke Huskus. Brooke is a special case for a couple of reasons. She received a kidney off her father as a live donor, and I've got to record Brooke very soon because she is currently heavily pregnant, which is another hurdle that transplant recipients face. I hope you'll join me, and I hope you make the decision to donate life.